0: Well, as you all know, today is Resurrection Sunday, but it's important, I think, that we remember where Jesus' followers were that morning before their aha moment. They were engulfed in grief, mourning the loss of someone so near and dear to them. In his book, A Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wallerstorff shares some wisdom as well as a window into what it felt like when his young adult son died. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom, but not all are gifted, and that is okay, too. But please don't say when someone dies that it's not really so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. There's a hole in the world now, In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. A center like no other of memory and hope and knowledge and affection, which once inhabited the earth, is gone. Only a gap remains. A perspective on this world, unique in this world, which once moved about within this world, has been rubbed out. Only a void is left. There's nobody now who saw just what he saw knows what he knew, remembers what he remembered, loves what he loved. A person, an irreplaceable person, is gone. The world is emptier. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap never to be filled. When I read that, I couldn't help but think that these are the kinds of things that Jesus' followers were thinking and feeling in the days following his death. I invite you to turn to, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We have been uh, following a number of the stories and miracles of Jesus in the gospel of John during the, the lead up to this uh, resurrection Sunday. And today we come to the greatest sign of all. John 20, we'll read verses 1 to 18. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary she turned around she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic raboni which means my teacher Jesus said do not hold on to me for i have not yet ascended to the father go instead to my brothers and tell them i am ascending to my father and your father to my god and your god Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news i have seen the lord and she told him that he had said these things to her. Just before we continue in the message, I know sometimes we have some people with uh, English is a challenging language for you. And I do have some paper copies of the message this morning. It's easier sometimes to follow along. in that. If you would like a copy, just put up your, uh, your hand and our, one of our ushers will bring you a copy. Now, when we read the Gospels from this side of the resurrection, we tend to forget how hard it was for Jesus' followers to believe that something as hope-filled and amazing as the resurrection could really have happened. Each of the Gospels, and especially John's account, shows us how hard it was, even or maybe especially for Jesus' closest followers, to believe that he had really risen from the dead. John begins the story of the resurrection morning while it was still dark. Uh, That was the phrase that stood out to me in the opening verses, not only because it meant they had had a sleepless night, but it's symbolic overtones. At this point in the story, none of the disciples believe Jesus is resurrected, so they are still waiting in the darkness. Mary Magdalene, and also the other women, it says we, in verse 2, they were engulfed in grief as they went to the tomb that morning. They had seen him crucified. They had seen the soldier pierce Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Yes, he was dead. It was obvious to them that life would and could never be the same again. The world was emptier now. Only a hole remained, a void, a gap never to be filled. When Mary arrived at the tomb and and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance, she was horrified. Assuming the worst, she ran to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple the terrible news. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. It was a, a natural assumption, especially historically, since the robbing of tombs happened frequently enough for Roman Emperor Claudius to later make it a capital offense. Mary assumed the empty tomb was a bad sign because she and the others still did not know it was God who had been at work in the dark, in the darkness, and as John would say, and overcome it. When the full scope of what happened eventually comes to light, the evidence of the empty tomb will be seen for what it was. Not a bad sign, but a sign of good news. But at this point, Mary interpreted the empty tomb as bad news and shared it with others that way, prompting Peter and the other disciple to run as fast as they could. Seems they had a little bit of a race there, and the other disciple won. Uh, Maybe he was younger. Uh, Got to the empty tomb to see it for themselves. Now, who is this other faster disciple, we wonder? John doesn't tell us. I don't think he expects us to try and guess either because it is his role in the story that matters most. He's an eyewitness. Now, archaeologists have found and studied a variety of different kinds of tombs from that area and time period. And this one uh, on the slide, that fits probably best of the kinds they found, fits with the type of one that Jesus was placed in. Uh, you know, the, the fastest disciple bent down and looked in and he could see part of what was lying there and that's what's on the inside, but he didn't go in. And then when Peter arrived, he went straight into the tomb. Peter's always the one, fits his character. And he also saw the strips of linen lying there, but also the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, holding his mouth shut. Now, clearly they're repeated. These details struck them strange and and they contradicted mary's original assumption of you know some kind of robbery see john is plainly describing an orderly scene not one of wild confusion this means the body had not been taken by grave robbers they would never have left the clothes and left them neatly wrapped they would have taken the body the clothes and all The other disciple who had arrived at the tomb first but only looked in now enters it also, and and he sees everything now that Peter has seen. And he comes to a very different conclusion than Mary of Magdala and the other women. John tells us the other disciple saw the evidence of the grave clothes and believed. Believed what? That the body was really gone? Well, yes, but they all believed that. Clearly, this disciple believed something far more significant had happened. Even though, verse 9 says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The evidence of the empty tomb plus the presence and orderly arrangement of the grave clothes contradicted any grave robber theory. You see, cloth was valuable. Remember, the soldiers had gambled and cast lots for one of Jesus' garments. So, did the other disciple believe Jesus had been resuscitated? Like Lazarus. Some think uh, they call it the swoon theory. That is, Jesus just appeared to be dead, but after he had time to sleep it off, you know, he was uh, able to come out. Well, that may explain the orderly scene, but they had seen him die. They had remembered all too well the soldiers thrust into the side confirming he's dead. That was the professional coroner in that day. If he didn't get it right, it was his life on the line. So what did this other disciple believe? I found it helpful to know uh, as New Testament scholar Gary Burge points out, that elsewhere in this gospel, any absolute use of the verb to believe indicates a complete, robust faith in Christ. For example, in John 2, when they saw the sign, the miracle of the water turned into wine, when they saw the sign, they believed. They believed in him. And I think this suggests that the unnamed disciple believed the empty tomb was yet another sign, like the signs and miracles that Jesus had been doing, pointing beyond itself to something and someone far greater. This disciple is the first to believe Jesus' resurrection without yet having seen the risen Jesus. He models the beatitude that John will end this chapter with in in John 20 verse 29. Blessed are those who have not yet seen, not seen and yet have believed. So even though verse 9 says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to, die, had to rise from the dead, this model disciple believed Jesus had risen like he had promised he would back in John chapter 2. Destroy this temple, he had said, and in three days I will rebuild it. And John said he had been referring to his body, but we didn't realize it till after the fact. You see, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, they will still need Jesus to explain what was said in all the scripture concerning him, connecting all of the dots. And the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised would also remind them of what Jesus had already taught, but which they could not fully understand until after his resurrection. Now, I remember... uh, Uh, fishing this summer, I know you probably hear fishing stories from time to time from me, but it was the first, my first time fishing for pink salmon in the Fraser River. And uh, my friend Phil, he was away on holidays, but he gave me instructions. He said, just go out there, wait for the tide to change, and they will come. I said, "But, but how will I know? You know, I've never done this before. And he says, oh, when they come, you will see it. And I remember standing out there for hours, casting out into the water. And I thought the tide had changed, but then suddenly it was as if the water on the Fraser River began to come alive and these fish started jumping and the fins were right on the surface. It was most marvelous indeed. And after I saw, I understood what had been told to me, right? And so the experience of the risen Christ will clarify and deepen their understanding. This means that they didn't, you know, make manufacture a resurrection uh, to agree with their prior interpretation of the Old Testament. No, they didn't see the connection. They were first convinced that Christ was risen. And then they came to see the fuller meaning of all these Old Testament passages, which Jesus had talked about, but they they couldn't understand till the experience. And so John closes off this part of the story by telling us that the the disciples went back to where they were staying. You see, I think he's just telling us they were not there for what happened next to Mary. Now, each of the Gospels has stories about how Jesus appeared to his followers after the resurrection. There is something deeply honest and moving about each of them. And yet, I think Jesus' appearance here to Mary is even more special because she was not one of the apostles, not one of that inner circle, right? You might think a regular disciple. After she had delivered the bad news to Simon Peter and the other disciple, Mary had obviously gone back to the tomb and she was stood outside of it crying, it says. And she too now looks into the tomb. But she sees two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head and the other at the foot. And I wonder why this detail. And I think it's like God was shining a spotlight on this. Right? On what had happened. And yet she is so stuck in her grief assumption that someone had taken Jesus' body, that she remains unmoved, even in the presence of angels. Now, if you read the Bible, that is very strange indeed. Because always when people are in the presence of angels in the Bible, their first reaction is fear and awe. And usually the angel says, fear not. You know, for behold, I bring you good news or something like that. And so uh, she is unmoved. The angel's they don't solve the riddle of Jesus' disappearance. And yet by their very question, woman, why are you crying? I think they are suggesting that sorrow is no longer appropriate. The old reality, that's given way to something new. And yet Mary's response to these divine messengers is still the same as it was to the disciples back in verse 2. She is The solution for Mary's seemingly bottomless grief will only come when she sees Jesus personally. As she stooped over, remember, looking into that empty tomb, she hears someone obviously coming from behind her, and she she looks up and she sees a man standing there. We know it's Jesus, but she thinks it's the gardener. And so he asks her the same question the angels did. Woman, why are you crying? And he adds another question that is more forward-focused. Who is it you are looking for? And yet her mind remains mired in the same old grief and problem. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. Same. Despite the mounting evidence, and the very presence of Jesus, she's unable to get unstuck. I mean, what more can be done to open her eyes? You know, it would be comical at this point if it wasn't so tragic. So mired in unbelief. Some of us have family or friends like that. You know, I remember hearing stories of People stuck in unbelief. Uh, I'd heard stories of Japanese soldiers, you know, after World War II who, who didn't believe it was really over. And I actually looked into that. I thought, is this really true? For years, they didn't believe? Hiro Onoda and his three fellow soldiers were on one of the Philippine islands when the war ended. But the first time they heard of it was through a leaflet two months later. And that leaflet read, the war ended on 15th of August. Come down from the mountains. And they thought it was allied propaganda, so they ignored it. Months later, leaflets were dropped by, from, by air with a, a surrender order written by one of their own Japanese generals. Onada's group found that too, but they didn't trust it either. Some islanders were actually over the years being shot by these Onara and his holdouts. And so in 1952, letters and family pictures were dropped from air urging them to surrender. But the four concluded that this too was a trick. Two decades later, after that, in 1972, Onara was the only one of that group still alive. And in February 1974, two years after that, he was found by a Japanese man, Norio Suzuki, who had traveled around the world looking for this Lieutenant Onoda. But Onoda still, when he met him, they were still refused to surrender, saying he was waiting for orders from his superior officer. And so the Japanese government actually went to work and they located his former commander, Major Taniguchi, and he was now, he'd been a bookseller for years. He'd retired. Um, and so Taniguchi went to Lunbang Island in the Philippines. And on March 9th, 1974, he finally wet, met with Onada, fulfilling the promise that he had made to him 30 years earlier. Whatever happens, he had said to him, we will come back for you. And Onada, was properly relieved of his duty and he surrendered 29 years after the war had ended. Thankfully, Jesus knew what to do to make sure Mary didn't remain stuck nearly that long. As the good shepherd who knows his sheep, as John 10 says, he knows and says the one word that will cause the scales to fall from her eyes and banish the grief from her heart mary what a magical moment it was as she cried out in response raboni my teacher obviously the term that she had used to refer to him and she tries to embrace him clinging desperately i think not to be separated ever again but jesus stops her by saying and saying don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Why would Jesus say that? First, let's be clear. Uh, the verb uh, haptomai does not mean merely, you know, stop touching me. It doesn't mean touching. It means hold on, clinging, you know, and not letting go. And then we look at the context, because Jesus will say to Thomas later in the chapter, you know, here, touch my wounds. And uh, in Luke chapter 24, he will say to them, touch and see, it's me, I'm alive. So it seems to be that what Jesus is doing is stopping her from clinging and not letting go because he will not be staying. It is not a return to the things, the way things were before he died, which I'm sure she was de- desperate. Let's, <laughs> you're back. And she hoped it would stay the same. Things are going to change. And he had told them that back in chapters 14 to 16. He would not always be present with them in body. He will be returning to the father. But as he promised, he will not leave them as orphans. His ongoing presence will be with them, but it must come in another form. And that word in Greek means another of the same kind. Not another of a different kind, another of the same kind, and that of the Holy Spirit, the very one who had animated and empowered Jesus. I'm sending you my very Spirit to live within you. You see, Jesus' correction is a spiritual redirection away from Jesus' physical presence and a preparation for the Spirit that was about to be given. And Jesus, in John, he will do this in principle in John 20, verse 22. When he breathes on them and says receive the spirit in principle he is doing it what in practice they will experience at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Once he has returned to the father in heaven on throne with him as the glorious Lord he will send the Holy Spirit to be with them forever and to carry on his work in the world. Indeed Jesus has an all important assignment for Mary. Go instead to the disciples and tell them the good news. They're still stuck in grief, right? It's time to celebrate because something has happened that has changed not only the course of history, but your personal destiny. You know, the power of good news, I'll never forget my my mother. She died a number of years ago, but one of the stories which she would tell when she was a kid in school during World War II And one day, a local official from town, you know, the head cheese, uh, he wasn't called the mayor in our town. Our town was too small, but whatever his name was, you know, he came to school and there was an assembly. And then he said, the war is over. (laughs) And they cheered. He says, school's off for the day. We have to go celebrate. She never forgot that. That was the response good news. If you believe this news, then a whole new reality is now, and you need to live on the basis of that reality. And so John concludes his book of signs with a call to faith, an invitation to experience the blessing of believing in Jesus. I want to conclude with three uh, lessons and applications First is that the empty tomb for John is the ultimate sign. John's been giving us signs all the way along, pointing ahead. The water turned into wine, the healing of the man at the pool, uh, the man who had been crippled for life. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 and even Lazarus, all signs. And we are invited to consider the evidence for the resurrection and to follow where the evidence leads. John is giving us eyewitness accounts. He's showing us how hard it was for people to believe, but also how transformed their lives were. And it happens still today. And also, we're given a window into the power and persistence of false assumptions. It was hard for Jesus' closest followers to believe, but they followed the the evidence the eyewitness testimonies, and John 20, if we were to read the whole chapter, we would see a variety of examples of of how people made that journey to faith, some sooner than others, some very late, Thomas, the last holdout, you know, Um, and yet we find in there how patient and persistent Jesus is. He is wanting to call them out of grief into joy and new life. Well, secondly, faith is the ultimate step. You know, faith is not as many people sometimes think. It's wishful thinking. Well, you know, I can try as hard as I want. I do still do not believe in the Easter Bunny. I know, no, I don't believe it. You know, I can't will myself into believing something that obviously isn't true. And biblical faith isn't like that. It is based on something much more certain. When Scottish missionary John Patton traveled to a group of islanders in the the southwest Pacific years ago, he was determined to tell the people about Jesus and the importance of believing, putting their faith in him. But there was a problem. He discovered the tribal people had no equivalent for the word faith. How am I going to tell them to have faith in Jesus, he wondered. It, it, it plagued him for quite a while, and he struggled to help them to understand the meaning of that. And, and then one day, one of the tribal people came into the room where he was, and Patton was sitting on a chair, and he had an idea. He picked up his feet off the chair, and he just had his feet in the, in the air, I mean off the floor, and his feet in the air. And, and he said to them, what am I doing right now? And the gentleman used a word that means to lean your whole weight on. And that became the word, the expression that Patton used to explain faith. He says it's leaning all of your weight upon Jesus and his promises, especially his promise of resurrection life. On Good Friday, we had someone give their heart to the Lord and come to faith in that day. What a wonderful, this is not just something back then. This is something that God continues to do today. And faith is the ultimate and wonderful step. And finally, Jesus, the spirit is Jesus' ultimate gift. The spirit is Jesus' ultimate gift. The spirit is another that is of the same kind like Jesus. Jesus had said, but very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away, he told his disciples ahead of time. Unless I go away, the advocate... The comforter, the counselor, the spirit will not come to you. But if I go, oh, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to send him. And he's going to be with you forever. He is going to be my presence in you, all places, all time. The spirit is our comforter, our teacher, our guide. He says, I'm going to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God, part of the family of God. And the Spirit is not only our comfort, our teacher, our guide. He is also uh, God's mission mobilizer that moves us into mission. And the acts of the apostles are really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, I invite you to, uh, to pray with me. And as we pray, invite the worship team to come up. Oh Lord, I thank you that you have given us the ultimate sign of all the leaders of the many religions and nations throughout time, you are the only one who is, has an empty tomb because you are alive. Lord, we thank you that you invite us to take the ultimate step in order to lead us out of despair into the glorious hope that you alone give And we thank you for your ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit that you give, not just to some believers, to everyone who confesses their sins, says, I am desperately in need of you. Please come into my life. And you come and you don't just bring a little bit of yourself. You come in with full gusto in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the risen Lord. Amen. Forever, remember being on car tr- or on long road trips, and the kids say, "Are we there yet?" It's taking forever. This is a way better forever. <laughs> it's something great that's never going to end. Paul, in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he ends his long chapter on the glory of the resurrection by saying, "Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you." Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Before I send you off to serve the Lord, just a reminder, if you would like prayer, uh, you can come up to the front and uh, David or myself will be available here to to be able to pray with you. Perhaps uh, you have a challenge that you're going through in your life or maybe you have some good news and you would like to, to pray and thank God for that. I invite you to take advantage of that. Let us go and serve the Lord. In the glory of the resurrection, amen.